Okay, open your Bibles to James chapter 1. We'll continue our journey through the book of James. It's been a wonderful study so far as we've went through this book. And today we'll be in chapter 1 again. And so far we've looked at verses 1 to 12, in which James is giving instruction in righteousness to the saints that he's writing to. And he's doing this, remember, too, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. So the true author of these words is the Holy Spirit of God. And he's writing, James is writing it again by inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the saints that are going through times of trials and troubles. And he's again giving them encouraging words to look to Christ and Him alone. And the fact that these trials is never doubted is brought forth. All of God's people will go through trials. It's guaranteed. We all will go through trials in this world because we're being conformed to the image of Christ as we go through this world. And so trials will come our way. They will come our way. They're guaranteed. It does not say the duration and how long they will be. It just says that trials will come to the Lord's people. And praise God that all our trials and temptations will cease the moment we're in glory. The the moment we're in glory, everything like that will cease. There'll be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more sickness, beloved. And we'll be in the midst of our Savior. We'll see Him face to face like we see one another face to face. It's going to be glorious, isn't it? It's going to be wonderful as we see our Savior. And we will have no more trials, no more temptations, no more trouble with this flesh, no more trouble with sin. It's going to be glorious. So let's read verses 12 to 18 here in James chapter 1. We'll see the context of our verses. James chapter 1, verse 12, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then, when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will, look at that, begat he us. We're born again by the will of God. We're saved by the will of God. Isn't that wonderful? With what? With the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So we see in verse 12 that James is writing to believers who, again, who are going through trials and temptations. The word temptations there in the Greek is tested, tested. And we've learned from our past studies in this chapter that this is what a trial is. Temptation, it's a test for us. It tests to see if our faith is genuine, doesn't it? We have saw that in our studies. It tests, the test comes and... Although they're painful, they're not meant to be painful. They're for our good and for God's glory. And so, temptations there again is tested. And these temptations and these trials are sent by God. They're sent by God to us. Not to try man so that we can see what kind of person we are. No, again, these, these trials and these temptations are sent our way to prove our faith. To prove whether it's genuine or not. The Lord already knows we're saved sinners, doesn't He? He already knows we're saved sinners. He already knows who the people of God are. 
And you know what else these trials do? These trials wean us from this world, don't they? They make us homesick for heaven. They make us homesick to be in the presence of our great God and King just to behold Him. Just to see Him. To be done with sin. Are you done with sin? (laughs) My, oh my. Do you sin more than you want to? Absolutely, right? Oh, praise be to God though for God's people. All our sins are washed clean in the precious, precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And our hearts are made known by God's method of affliction. And this is to draw, these tests and these trials are to draw out what's hidden in our hearts. And what do they do? What's, what's ultimately the end goal of these is they draw us closer to Christ, don't they? We've seen that in our studies. When this trial comes, what usually happens is we try to fix it on our own at first. And then we fall flat on our face, knowing that we can't do it. And then we run to Christ. And we stay there, don't we? And I know, I don't know, you know, from my experience going through trials and temptations, I'm always being drawn to Christ through them. Always. Always. That's the end result for me. I'm always looking to Him more going, Lord, help my unbelief. You know, we came out today. I love, I walk over in the morning to turn everything on in the church. And there was one bird, he was just singing. Oh, he was just singing. I love birds. I just, I could just sit out in the porch all morning long and listen to those beautiful little creatures. And this one bird, he was singing away. And there's a whole bunch. I call it the Lord's Orchestra whenever I come home. I said, well, the, the, the Lord's Orchestra is going again. And it was just beautiful. And when we walked over here, Vicky and I, for service, heard him again. And I said to Vicky, I said, you know what that reminds me? Every time I hear those birds sing, it reminds me that the Lord takes care of those little birds. And how much more valuable are we as the people of God than that little bird? And what is that little bird doing? He's singing praises, isn't he? <laughs> Spurgeon used to say they, they go down to eat and drink, and then they lift their head up in praise. Oh my, they're beautiful. They're absolutely beautiful little animals. But it's a reminder for us that the Lord takes care of us no matter what we go through. He's our all-sufficient Savior, isn't He? And these trials that we go through, they also prove to us our insufficiency. They prove to us how insufficient we are, how weak we are, how frail we are. And and I, you know, you think I'd... I'd, I'd Personally, you think that I would learn. But like Donnie and I were talking this week, we're slow learners, aren't we? We're slow. We have to be taught these things over and over and over again. Oh my. Isn't the Lord long suffering with us? Isn't He good to us? He's so good to us. My, oh my. So they draw us closer to the Lord Jesus Christ and then again we realize our insufficiency and then we realize that Christ is all. And we're constantly learning this, beloved. And this is in contrast to what men are proclaiming in the times of Jesus. And I've heard it even in these times as well. They say this, they say, well, if God knows everything, 
and and he allows sin to happen, then he's the author of sin. I've heard it. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say that. And my answer is always the same. God forbid. God forbid. And we see here in this portion here that James, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, confronts this error head on. Look at verses 14 to 16. He's confronting that error right here before us. See, there's nothing new under the sun, is there? Man doesn't change. So they come up with the same things against God. They've been, they've been coming up with these things for 2,000 years. Beloved, there's nothing new under the sun. Look at this. But every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust has conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. But look at verse 13. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. Neither tempteth he any man. So this is something that was occurring. People were saying, well, obviously they were saying they were being tempted. And why couldn't God stop? And he says, I am, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. We're not tempted of God when we sin. But people say that. Or they say, well, if God, God's sovereign over all, why doesn't he just stop sin? We're going to look at the answer to that question today. God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. And then James says in verse 16, do not err, my beloved brother. Don't, don't take that to heart. What they're saying is wrong. Turn, if you would, to the book of Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. Now, James writes these words calling us to confess our guilt and to not implicate God in our sin. Right? To not say that God compelled us to sin, but knowing that sin comes within our hearts. And we saw that brought out in the text, right? Because in verses 14, look at this, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Look at this. This is the words of the Master too. This isn't my opinion. This is the words of the Master in Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. These are the words of God incarnate in the flesh. Look what he says here in verses 17 to 20. Do not ye yet understand that whatsoever entereth in at the mouth goeth into the belly and it is cast out into the drought? But those things which proceed out of the mouth cometh forth from the heart and they defile the man. So it's not what's outside that goes into our body that defiles us. It's what comes out of our heart. It's what comes out of our heart. But these things proceed out from the mouth Come forth from the heart, and they defile man. For out of the heart proceedeth what? Evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands defiles not a man. So look, let's go back to our text. James knows that most people have an evil tendency to blame God. 
when they find themselves in trials. And this is wrong. Because by His very nature, God is unable to either be tempted in the sense that we are tempted, as James will explain and we see in verses 14 to 16 and verse 13, nor can He Himself tempt anyone. Why? Because He's pure holiness, beloved. He's pure righteousness. He's holy. He's not the God of people's imaginations that's up there wringing His hands. He's a holy God and the scepter of His kingdom is in His hand, beloved. And He reigns and rules. That's our God. And He reigns in righteousness, doesn't He? And He's holy. He's holy. So we should remember that the pagan gods of ancient times were well acquainted with evil. They often sinned themselves. But the true God of the Bible cannot be tempted by evil. And the scriptures teach that the scriptures teach that there are some who are blinded by God. Absolutely. There's some who are given up to a reprobate mind. The scriptures teach these things. But as we see, James was compelled to deny that we are tempted by God. That our sin has anything to do with God. And this is again for our learning, beloved. This is for our learning. This is instruction and righteousness for us. Some may take the scriptures and teach that man and woman are blinded by God and given up to a reprobate mind and then they use that to sin. Here are two truths. The first is that when scripture ascribes blindness or hardness of heart to God, It does not make God the beginning of that blindness. When did we become blind to the things of God? When did we become hardened to the things of God? When did we become dead in trespasses and sins? When Adam fell. When Adam fell. So let us never use those things as an excuse to sin. God is not the author of sin. So to ascribe it to Him is wrong. It comes from within ourselves. We saw that in James. We see that in verses 14 to 16. Let's read that again. But every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. That comes from within, doesn't it? Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. It's all from within us, beloved. Isn't it amazing that, that the, the, the one thing that we do that we contribute is sin and salvation is all outside of ourselves? Isn't that interesting? <laughs> We're the sinners and He's the Savior. <laughs> oh my. And that all comes from us. And you know when the Lord saves a person? We own our sin, don't we? We now say, I'm a sinner. When we didn't before. And praise God, we're now sinners saved by the grace of God in Christ. 
So the scripture asserts that the reprobate are delivered up to their own deprived lusts, but it's because but is it because the Lord deprives or corrupts their hearts? Absolutely not. We saw in the scripture, absolutely not. By no means. It's because they're already corrupt. They're born dead in trespasses and sins, just like every one of us. We we came into this world dead in trespasses and sins. Now we who believe are alive in Christ, praise be to God. But when we came into this world, we were dead spiritually. My, oh my. The only one who came into this world sinless is he who is the seed of the woman. The Lord Jesus Christ. He who is God incarnate in the flesh. We who are the seed of Adam, we're all born dead just like our our father Adam was. He died. He died spiritually, didn't he, when he fell? And Well, we're his kin, aren't we? Yeah, that's, why, that's why it's written that this sin comes out from within us. It's natural. It's just like breathing for us. Another question may arise that since God blinds or hardens, is he the author of evil? The answer is no. We saw that in Matthew. Sin comes from within, not from without. We see it here in our text. Sin comes from within, not from without. And God punishes sin, doesn't He? He gives a just reward to the ungodly. Wages of sin is death. That's a payment in the, in the Greek. It's like a Roman soldier being paid for their duties. My... Those who refuse to be ruled by Him, they'll get their just reward. They'll get their pay. We don't get what we deserve, do we? Remember last week we saw that, that Christ is our reward? He's our reward in glory. Oh my. Let's read verses 14. Actually, let's read verses 13 to 15. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. So clear. And then we see in verse 16, Do not err, my beloved brethren. Turn, if you would, to Genesis chapter 6. You know, we're warned in James chapter 1, 16, not to charge God with sin. He alone is holy. He alone is righteous. So the origin of sin is not in God. And no blame can be imputed to Him. He doesn't take pleasure in evil. No. Look at Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 to 8. This portion here brings home a truth which is true for every born-again, blood-washed believer. You know what that truth is? We found grace in the eyes of God. That's truth. Every born-again, blood-washed believer has found grace in the eyes of God because we were purchased with the precious, precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only reason we are saved is, is because just like Noah, 
we found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Look at this, Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 to 8. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What an indictment. That's the natural state of man right there. That's how we were before the Lord saved us. And, and we still struggle with sin all the time, don't we? All the time. Now we're saved sinners, we who are His people. Praise be to God. Look at this. And He repented the Lord that He had made man on the earth, and it grieved Him at His heart. God doesn't take pleasure in evil at all. We see here. It grieved Him at His heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. Now, there's the sovereignty of God on display. This world is His. Every visible and invisible thing is His. Every atom is at His control. Every molecule is at His control. Look at this though in verse 8. Now, what's the difference between Noah and everybody else? It's right here. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. What's the difference between you and I and all our family members and friends that we grew up with? What's the difference between them and us? We who are the redeemed of the Lord, we found grace in the eyes of God. That's it. The only one who made us to differ is God. Think about that. Think about all the people you know in your whole life. People you went to school with, people you worked with, family. And the only one who made you to differ and I to differ is God. Because just like Noah here, we found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And that's in the eyes of Jehovah. That's the self-existent one there in the Hebrew. So man in their vanity, attempts to cast blame for his vices and sins on God. You know why? Because every evil proceeds from their heart. Oh, my. Let's go back to our text. James here proves that God tempts no one because he cannot be tempted with evil. Look at verse 13. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Literally, this means untemptable by evil. Untemptable by evil. That is, God is not capable of being tempted. He's not capably, capable of being seduced by wicked and sinful men. Our great God is so pure. And he's not influenced by evil suggestions. He's so pure that he's not tempted or seduced by men. Therefore, we can conclude that if God cannot be tempted to do what is sinful, he cannot possibly tempt others to sin. Now let us consider God's will. Can God's will be thwarted? Can anyone thwart the will of God? Can anyone bend God's will to what they ask for? 
Nope. God's will can never be thwarted, right? Of course not. He wouldn't be God. If his will could be thwarted, he wouldn't be God. So when man sins, is the will of God done? Well, of course. Because it's part of the all things that God has purposed and planned. But we're going to look here at God's permissive will and God's directive will. Scripture says this, "...in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of Him who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will." Now let's stop there. Daniel says this. Daniel writes these things. It's a stated fact in Scripture that God's will cannot be stopped by man. Now God's not the evil, or the, God's not the author of sin, right? But He allows it to happen, boy. He does allow it to happen, but He uses it for His means. Man, we saw. We're the author of sin, aren't we? It comes out of us. Listen to what Daniel wrote here. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. This is speaking about God. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? Now, people can say to us, What are you doing? can't say that to God at all. He does whatever he pleases with the armies of heaven. One angel killed over 100,000 men. But these angels are at his beck and call. They cannot do anything outside of his permissive will. My, oh my. And man, the inhabitants of the earth, none can stay his hand. Can anyone thwart the will of God? No, absolutely not. No one can say, what are you doing, Lord? So let us consider that the Lord has only one will, but this will is seen in two aspects. There is the permissive will of God and there is the directive will of God. The directive will of God was to put Joseph on the throne of Egypt. Right? Joseph was to go to the throne of Egypt. He's going to be, he's going to be prime minister of Egypt. That was God's purpose. That was God's will. That Joseph would be on the throne and that he would save Israel. He would save Israel. Preserve their life in, in Egypt. Now, in God's permissive will, Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. But God did not direct those men to do that, did he? He didn't direct them to sell Joseph into slavery. Because if he did, that would make God the cause of their sin. And he's not. When Joseph was put into Potiphar's house, God didn't direct men to put Joseph in prison. But this was God's will. This was his permissive will. And through that situation, what happened? Joseph was bought to the throne of Egypt. He became the prime minister of Egypt, answering only to Pharaoh. So it was God's directive will that Joseph was to sit on the throne, wasn't it? It was was his directive will. But it was, it was carried out by many events which men did because that's what men wanted to do. And it, little did they know it brought about God's directive will. They had no idea. Our Savior's death was the directive will of God, wasn't he? Wasn't it? 
our Savior was sent to save His people from their sins, right? That's what He was sent here to do. He was sent here by God's directive. Well, He's the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And it was God's will that Christ would die on that cross in order that He might be our sin offering from all eternity. God had purposed and planned that. He's the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So it was God's directive will that Christ would die on the cross as a sinner's substitute. But God didn't nail Him to that cross, did He? Nope. God didn't nail Him to the cross. Wicked men did, right? Man in their natural state nailed Him to that cross and, and God didn't direct Pilate to sentence his son to die. But Pilate did that out of his own cowardice, didn't he? He did God's will, his permissive will. So God's directive will was that Christ would die upon that cross. Turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 2. We'll see this spot forth. The man who drove the nails into the precious hands of our Savior, he did that all by himself, right? God didn't tell him to do it. He hammered those nails into the hands of our Savior and the feet of our Savior. But in doing so, he did God's will, God's permissive will. You know, God allows a man to do these things to carry out his directive will. Look at this in Acts chapter 2. And it's brought forth right here. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 24. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye, him, ye yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. So it was God's directive will that Christ would die on the cross. Look at this. Ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Did God tell him to do that? No man did that, didn't he? Now it was part of God's directive will, but God, God's permissive will allowed that to happen, didn't he? Didn't it? It did. Whom God hath raised up, Heaven loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. So man did what their evil hearts told them to do. It says here, wicked man took him up and crucified him and slayed him. All the time, not knowing that they were carrying out God's directive will. That's amazing, isn't it? Turn, if you would, two chapters over to Acts. Acts chapter 4, we read in verses 26 and 28. Again, we see that wicked men killed the Lord of glory in God's permissive will, but in doing so, they carried out, again, God's directive will. Acts 4, verses 26 to 28. The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. There we go. For of a truth against the holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel gathered together. They were all against him. What, look what it says here, though. For to do whatsoever thy hand 
and thy counsel determined before to be done. So we see God's permissive will, allowing them to do that. And we see God's directive will, that Christ would die upon the cross. My, oh, my. You cannot say that it's God's directive will for any man to sin, though it is his permissive will. And in verse 14 of James, look at James chapter 1, verse 14. But every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. There it is. The source of our sin is ourselves. That which is inside, not that which is outside. What does God have to do for a man to go to hell? Amen, brother. Just leave him alone. What does God have to do for you and I to go to heaven? Everything. Everything. My, oh, my. So we see that God mites out death for sin. It's the wages. It's the just payment that God's law and justice demands. Look at verses 15. Verse 15. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin when it is finished, bringeth forth death. So if God directed a man to sin, it would be unjust for him to punish him, wouldn't it? God doesn't direct anyone to sin. We see here in these verses that it comes from within. We're, we're tempted when it, when we're drawn away of our own lust and enticed. You know, in the enemy, he studied mankind for that's 6,000 years. He knows everything makes us trip. <laughs> we're no match for him, are we? But he can only do what our great king allows. See, who's our own worst enemy? Spurgeon said this, and I love it. Our worst enemy is ourselves. Because our sin comes from within. It comes from within. And then look at what James writes here. When men make an error and they blame God for their evil, our dear brother James here brings forth in verse 16, Do not err, my beloved. That's divinely loved ones. Do not err, my divinely loved ones. <laughs> oh, my divinely loved brethren, don't err. Don't err about God's will. It is for sure that God's will will be done in all things, yet the blame for sin comes from our own deprived hearts. Praise be to God, though, the Lord Jesus Christ went to Calvary's cross for His people. And He shed His precious blood all our sins was imputed to Him. And He shed His precious, precious blood to purchase our eternal souls, beloved. And now we are clothed in the spotless righteousness of Christ. So men do what they want. And God gives them free reign to sin to the fullest. You know what? And you know why? They have no idea that they are carrying out God's directive will by His permission for them to sin. Now, I can't explain it. I just know it's true. 
as one one of our grace preachers said, Jack Shanks, he says, I'm not in the explaining business. When you start to explain God, he said, you're in trouble. When you try to bring God down to our level, where he could be understood by this natural mind, then you're in deep trouble. Scripture declares this, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, his ways past finding out. And it goes on to say this in Job 9.10, Which doeth great things past finding out, yea, and wonders without number. Lo, he goeth by me, and I see him not. He passes on also, but I perceive him not. Behold, he taketh away, who can hinder him? Who will say unto him, What doest thou? But his judgments and his ways are past finding out. Praise God for the mercy that we have received in and through the Lord Jesus Christ.